0: Hey everyone, this is Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, here with another interview on This Week in B2B. Well, this week on B2B, we're going to be breaking down both Hasbro and Mattel's Q2 revenue numbers. The numbers surprised investors and the industry with major growth after a rocky 2020. So what we're going to be doing is breaking down some of the strategies that worked to push these toy giants towards success and try to better understand how media and IP investments are going to shape competition for some of the already established players, as well as for new entrants and for digital natives. So here to join us and to give some insights is Mr. James Zahn. He's deputy editor of The Toy Book, which is a leading trade magazine that's serving the toy industry since 1984, covering toys, games, licensing, video games, and more. James, great to have you on. How you doing? Hey,
1: doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, real pleasure getting to chat with you today and sourcing your backgrounds here. Uh, Real quick, before we get into the numbers, can you give our audience just a little insight on the perspective you're bringing today, how you got into the industry, uh, and specifically where your research lies?
1: Sure. Yeah. The the toy book has been covering the industry since 1984. We have relationships with every toy maker, big and small, as well as all of the licensing companies. And we're talking agents, we're talking the licensors. We work with the retailers, both mass and specialty. And uh, we sort of see it all. We see all sides of the business. We see toys in some cases, uh, 18 months or two years before they even hit the market from the time that they're in prototype stage. Um, We also have a consumer side of the business, which is the toy insider. And uh, we sort of connect with families there. So we have a lot of different ways that we work with the toy industry. We cover everything daily on our website. And then of course, we have a print magazine, which is what we've been known for, for the past nearly 40 years now. Um, Perspective wise, we cover all of the earnings. Um, We do look at uh, all of the nuts and bolts of the entire thing. So supply chain issues, um, what's happening, how entertainment intersects with this, um, what the investors are feeling. Uh, It's sort of an all-encompassing look that we take uh, towards the entire toy industry and everything adjacent to it. So we're talking games and entertainment, Um, all the businesses that intersect with the toy industry somehow we have our, our fingers in those.
0: Perfect. Well, that insight's going to be perfect then for our conversation today. So as a recap, uh, Hasbro posted a 54% in quarterly revenue growth for Q2. Uh, we also saw Mattel post Q2 revenue, and that went up. Uh, So both those numbers were much larger than uh, investors and analysts in the industry were expecting. And again, in both cases, this was a surprise surge in revenue, but also more generally for the industry. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Why so much surprise on those numbers from the industry? Do you agree with that surprise? Or was this a more expected return to form?
1: It is surprising to an extent. But of course, We do uh, know that the past 18 months has been a very strange thing where the business itself has changed amid the pandemic. There were um, so many different unheard of factors. And with Hasbro specifically, it's interesting because their business is no longer just toys and nor is Mattel. But when they come around and... Um, they they do all of this. Uh, sorry, there's a little bit of commotion happening behind me. Here, no worries. No but, worries. Um, no, when uh, Mat- or Hasbro now separates their business with the entertainment, the consumer products, etc. They've got three distinct things, the third one being like their gaming division, where they saw their big spike is in entertainment this time. Because since they bought Entertainment One or E1, as everyone calls it... Um, they were shut down last year. They, they were not delivering content. They were not producing content. So now they're back into that. The delivery is happening. Production has started again. And then now the way they're structuring it, those entertainment properties are going to funnel back into what it's all about on the toy side and the consumer product side. So when they inherited E1, They also got all these big preschool brands like Peppa Pig and PJ Masks and Ricky Zoom. And those are big content creating licenses. But then they also were farming out toys to other companies, smaller companies like Jazzwares and Just Play. Now those toys are all coming back in house to Hasbro and this holiday season, they're going to be offering the first PJ Masks toys and the first Mm -hmm. Peppa Pig toys to carry the Hasbro branding on the back of them. So that IP that they're putting out there in front of millions of kids globally is now funneling right back into toys that they're putting on shelves. So we're gonna see that boom. Additionally, the gaming side, they've got Wizards of the Coast. They've also got, you know, they more traditional games like, you know, the monopolies and the Life's of the world and all of this stuff, um, those are still big. They've been big for the past year. And more and more folks have connected on these multiplayer platforms, even like Dungeons and Dragons, um, huge boom for Hasbro. And that was fueled not only by people getting together and playing, like we're chatting right now digitally, they were playing that way last year, but then Stranger Things on Netflix had this whole big D&D hook that put it in front of a new audience. They're going to have a new a new movie coming out that's in production right now. So a lot of happening on the Hasbro side. Um, They may have hit a little bit of a hiccup with Snake Eyes here. Snake Eyes did not perform at the box office. It was supposed to be a G.I. Joe relaunch for them. The toys are out. The toys we know are actually doing pretty well, but that movie, which they did uh, uh, in a collaboration with Paramount, uh, may not have been the spark they were looking for uh, to get G.I. Joe back in the theaters in a big way. Uh, Shifting over to Mattel, they're of course making a huge play towards entertainment, but they're doing it differently. Um, they're not putting out a ton of capital. They're basically partnering with different studios and distributors and content creators that are essentially uh, taking the IP and running with that torch. Um, and then Mattel's ha- has this huge upside on the back end should it become a hit. So that's actually an interesting approach. So. There was a bit of a running joke for a couple of years where Mattel announced so many properties we're talking dozens of movies, dozens of TV shows, and nothing was coming out. And then they were constantly, you know, Barbie, Hot Wheels, American Girl. Um, I think there was a Viewmaster, Wishbone, all of these movies. We haven't seen any of them yet, but now it's finally starting to come out. So you got all this Barbie content going to Netflix. Masters of the Universe is back in a big way. Uh, The new show, Masters of the Universe Revelation, just premiered in July on Netflix. And Of course, what's that doing? It's sending people right back to the toy aisle. And there are uh, some data points that have started to emerge, particularly with the Barbie business, that every time a new Barbie piece of content pops up on Netflix, there can be a sales spike of anywhere from 15 to 30% the following week. So what we're seeing now is a real evolution of the business. And you will notice that all of these companies too, they're no longer calling themselves toy companies. They're toy and entertainment companies or they're global play and entertainment companies. And it's not just Hasbro and Mattel. Now you got spin master in the fold. They also set set up their business as three creative centers and they're doing toys, gaming, and entertainment. Their first big, in-house uh you know it's a co-production but paw patrol the movie is coming out this uh late this summer that's gonna have an entire and they went big they not only have a total relaunch of their paw patrol brand in the toy aisle themselves but they licensed out with a bunch of partners so you're going to see the paw patrol name which is a spin master slash nickelodeon property now, on toys from companies like Jack Specific and right. costumes from Disguise, and even you know, like Melissa and Doug and stuff are in the mix. And uh, Flybar is doing swing sets. So, all of these income streams, it's very cool.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we'll follow up here on media and IP strategies in a second. But uh, another trend I've seen over the last several years being a, a board game aficionado myself, I, uh, I roll those dice every Wednesday, uh, and it's, it's a good time. Love me some D&D. But on top of that has been a mass transition of a lot of tabletop classics to digital spaces, as well as the development of those classics into experiences all their own. Uh, you know playing dD online uh, has actually elevated the experience in a lot of ways beyond just the tabletop experience new features uh, new ways to sort of customize the experience top to bottom um, on top of that there's also been a lot of perp- uh, excuse me popular virtual party games that have entered the fray I think of jackbox for example I mean I you know that's a slight departure, but it's in the similar vein of sort of expanding what the party game, what that tabletop board game style feel can be. So I'm curious if you think that investments in virtual transitions or totally virtual native games and toy titles are a worthy strategy for some of these big players. Do you think they are or not? Why or why not?
1: It's sort of a little of everything. There's a place for everything for sure and it's going to kind of ebb and flow, have a bit of a roller coaster thing. Um, the virtual games became so big and we actually just ran a toy book feature about how the pandemic and people playing virtually actually changed play testing for these companies because they typically have these focus groups where they're showing their new products and they're getting the folks in there to play them hands-on and they couldn't do that last year. So you've now got a whole new crop of games kind of on the horizon that's going to come out that will be the first generation of games play-tested virtually by people that each have a physical copy of the game, but they're playing in their own home. So now those little development cues that they're picking up, and we've seen companies like Goliath and Funko Games is really getting into that, how they're evolving these. And then we're also starting to see some of these classic tabletop games go almost completely digital. There's a couple companies now that are developing game boards that are digital boards that can um, essentially display what we would normally see on cardboard. And then the players will play with physical pieces on top of that. Hmm. But that's also a whole new spin on it. And uh, you you mentioned D&D and elevating the way you were playing, that's also rolled into like the card game size. Uh, Magic the Gathering is a huge example of that. Pokemon, um, these are games that for decades now, people have played as a physical thing in their hand. And now they have ways to merge those two, not necessarily going completely digital, but there's AR components to it. Um, There's digital exclusives and content where you scan the card and you maybe get something from the physical world that becomes an exclusive in your digital game. So it's going to evolve. Um, And it is a strategy that everyone should pay attention to, but not necessarily jump in a hundred percent because there's always going to be a place to merge the old school and the new school. And we're seeing that now.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up trading cards too. Uh, you know, just to intersect some more anecdotes. I hit the local card shop up recently. Uh, My roommate's getting back into playing Pokemon because we're feeling nostalgic and old. And so, uh, you know, I bought a pack myself and they come now with these little QR tags where you can log the cards you got in your pack onto the virtual, uh, card game and the incentives to play on both platforms, I guess, right, going to your local card shop and playing in a tournament or playing more casually online appeal to different players and they also appeal to maybe the same player but in different moods, right? Maybe the same player doesn't always want to have high stakes competition gameplay, they want to test out their deck a little bit, they want to refine what they're doing, they can do that online in a more low stakes way and then bring that to their more engaged community, right? So I think that balance of in-person and digital, like you said, it's not that tabletops are dying and it's transitioning to a only virtual environment, but more that these spaces are leveraging each other to build a more cohesive experience for the end user. That's at least how it feels to me. Would you agree or disagree there?
1: I agree on it. And uh, it's important to note too that we are starting to see signs of digital burnout. People want to get together again and have that, you know, there's something to be said about just sitting around the table with other human beings. And while we saw that big boom in 2020, it will forever be a skewed number all the way around for everything, sales, retail, all of it. It's 2020 is going to be a weird blip forever. It's totally skewed. Um, But because of all the people that went digital, it is starting to decline again but it's not going to go back to what it was. It's here. It's here to stay. Um, And what's going to keep that fresh for people is innovation. These companies will consistently have to come up with new ways um, to keep the people engaged on both sides, digital and physical, to keep it exciting. And I think once live events start up again, like say San Diego comic-con 2022, um, I think we'll see more of a digital component to all of this sort of merge together, but we won't really see the impact until we have large groups of people and large groups playing digitally kind of clash. Right, right.
0: Well, just to harken back to your uh, initial response here, breaking down the IP and media strategies, That was really the big thing that carried Mattel and Hasbro into Q2 success. So what I want to do is break down how both media and IP separately and then together are going to play into the future strategies for toy companies to stay competitive in the market. So I'll start with media. Quick rehash here. Hasbro invested heavily in its TV production business. It's already rolled out new dramas like The Rookie. Uh, it's got slated uh, kids' TV shows like My Little Pony and Peppa Pig, which you mentioned. On Mattel's end, they partnered with Netflix to launch He-Man's Masters of the Universe. Uh, you brought up Barbie, they're launching Barbie content as well, and they're working with MGM to produce a Polly Pocket film. Uh, so. I'm curious if toy companies need to be weary of any financial supply chain or operational snags that come from transitioning their business models to also include media properties and the entire entertainment production ecosystem. Any challenges there you think are worth keeping an eye on?
1: I think the biggest thing to look at is just that duality that I mentioned earlier about how Hasbro's approaching this versus how Mattel is. So Hasbro has the huge capital investment and they basically bought their own studio and their own distribution. And a couple of the guys I've talked to over there have referred to them as being platform agnostic. So they can produce content in-house and they can either distribute it themselves or they can sell it off to the highest bidder. Mattel's strategy is more find partners that are good for a specific product and leverage that IP to them. Don't put a ton of capital into the production itself, but take the massive potential for a big you know, upside on the back end if something is a hit. Then on the flip side, if they're not putting money into developing it, if the product imp- or project implodes, they didn't spend on it. Someone else did. If the project never happens at all and just doesn't come out, they didn't invest in it. They just move on to the next one. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it shapes up because Hasbro's already seeing that big uptick because they're delivering content that's theirs now. Uh, Mattel, when will they actually see that back end upside? That's a little bit curious. Like the first Netflix production is out with Revelation, which is Masters of the Universe. Uh, The one part that a lot of people keep missing, even though it was announced more than a year ago, there's actually a second Masters of the Universe animated series coming out this fall with a different title. It's a more traditional title. It's just He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Also has its own toy line. That is a complete reimagining of the franchise for kids. Hmm. That one is specifically geared towards little kids. This one that just came out in July is really a a cross-generational bridge between folks of my age that grew up on this stuff 40 years ago and their kids now. It's a little more adult. It continues those stories from the 80s. This new one that's coming out, the characters are more uh, exaggerated, kind of cutesy. You can even see maybe a little bit of... uh, The Sprinkle of the Inspiration a year or so ago when they added Masters of the Universe to Fisher-Price Little People, the little two and a half inch figures. So, you know, from preschoolers to old folks, they've got something for you. And um, that is an interesting approach from Mattel. And we just saw it too on uh, a completely different thing here. But uh, on the licensing front, music, they added Run DMC to Fisher-Price Little People. Hip-hop legends, it's going to get mom and dad and maybe even the grandparents into it. But that's introducing an entirely new audience, literally starting as toddlers into this stuff. So Barbie, same type of thing. Uh, They've got things for all ages, from kids to collectors, Hot Wheels. And uh, I think one of the other interesting parts of the Mattel strategy is how big their direct-to-consumer has grown. Um, through Mattel creations and Hasbro has a thing too called Hasbro pulse where they, where they sell direct to consumer, but on the Mattel side, it went from a toys as art kind of uh, entertainment and licensing drop model into now they're just catering to delivering maybe higher cost things that certain audiences want that are kind of unique and tie right back into the entertainment they're putting out and the toys that they're putting on shelves. Um, So that's where we're at with that.
0: Yeah. And my next follow-up here and last question for you is on the IP side. It seems like all of these media investments are happening because they are able to leverage really established IP that already carries a lot of weight and creates those domino effects of, like you said, Peppa Pig, you invest in the content, that then creates a whole new line of toys that feeds off of that energy. And it's that, you know, snake eating its own tail kind of energy, right? So both Hasbro and Mattel have major IP to leverage for sales. Hasbro found that Q2 revenue surged because they were able to sell a lot of Marvel toys for both Falcon and Winter Soldier, as well as the new Black Widow movie. And then on Mattel's side, uh, their CEO, just sort of in an offhand comment during an interview, said that they're pretty confident that Mattel is poised to become an IP driven concern for industry competition. So you know they're feeling a lot of optimism in their ability to leverage their IP. So what I'm looking for you is some insight on IP strategy here, based on what we see Hasbro and Mattel leaning into. Do you think that IP strategies should focus on some of the biggest names with the most potential media crossover? Or do you see any uh, tangential or parallel value in also leveraging more toy-specific IP? So I think, for example, Hasbro's D&D, Mattel's Hot Wheels, right? Those aren't uh, immediately tied to potential media opportunities or they're not known for their media content, but they are also creating television shows and movies around them. So thoughts on how to leverage your IP correctly or to get the most bang for your buck with different kinds of IP?
1: So uh, to, to to piggyback on what you said about Mattel's CEO, Inan, um, yes, he's been saying for two or three years now that they are, quote, making it an IP-driven, high-performing toy company. That has been their, their slogan. And um, maybe now it's actually happening. It certainly seems that that turnaround, that company has been in turnaround for a while. And now it actually, I mean, if you you look at the shares and stuff too i mean they're almost at like a break even um it's pretty impressive how they've turned this around part of it is not going for the obvious ip of course they've got the big ones they've got barbie they've got hot wheels they've got american girl matchbox masters of the universe etc but they're starting to look even deeper major matt mason which most people have no idea what that is it's like an astronaut. They had a toy line that was hot, like back in the '70s. Um, last I heard, Tom Hanks was working on a movie based on that. They have they, Mattel has just hundreds of potential IPs just sitting there that need to be developed. I mean, Polly Pocket that you mentioned earlier that's going to be a movie. That brand was essentially dead a couple years ago, but they brought it back as toys first. They connected with the girls and boys that were fans in the, in the 90s and got them back into it, started with the new generation, and now it's hitting again. Sort of the same thing they did with Masters. Hot Wheels, um, there have always been animated um, spinoffs and tie-ins to that, uh, quite a few video games. Where they do a really great job with that brand is in live events. And that's something we haven't even really talked about here. Um, But it's hugely important to these companies. And Mattel really did a great job with that. They did uh, the Hot Wheels Legends Tour. This is in their third year. And sort of full disclosure, I was a guest judge the first two tours. Um, they, uh, They get out there in Walmart parking lots across the country. They bring thousands of families together for basically a traveling car show looking for a real life custom car build that could become a toy. But then in the meantime, this is a really grassroots way of connecting with families because they sprinkle in their other brands, they are bringing them to a retailer and then they're doing they're they're loading up these Walmart stores with extra product for that weekend and then doing specials. So they're moving product. I mean, this is like total old school marketing. Get them in the parking lot, then get them right inside the store to buy a bunch of stuff. Um, They've been doing that now three years. They have a traveling Barbie tour truck that they just announced. It was sidelined last year for obvious reasons. 2019, very successful. Barbie truck is back on the road. It's got exclusive. uh, I think Malibu Barbie is the theme this year merchandise you can only find by tracking down that truck they would have done crossovers with the comic cons and stuff and then they also do on the hot wheels note again hot wheels monster trucks live after they lost monster jam to spin master a few years ago they put a lot of stock in developing their own monster truck brand that's now at arenas And that is all filtering into, you know, that vehicle category for Mattel, I think was up like about 60% this last quarter, um, doing huge business. Same thing on American Girl. American Girl has had books and um, made for DVD movies that are now starting to be made for streaming. And of course, now they're going to do a big budget movie for theaters. Um, The media content has already been there but that brand had been on a decline for years. Now they're on their third consecutive quarter of sales increases for that brand. So again, it's rethinking it, reshaping it in toys, and then getting it out there where they can bridge that gap between the generations and, and sort of go forward with it. But um, you know, overall, very interesting to mine those old IPs. And on the Hasbro side, same type of thing, you know. There, have been talks for years that they were going to um, sort of hit on some of the '80s stuff, like uh, Rom the Space Knight and Mask, which was sort of a sort of a played second fiddle to GI Joe, but um, also has a big uh, popular audience there and uh, Visionaries and There's all these little things out there that could, if they were, if they were provided the same level of care as a big franchise like a GI Joe or something could become the next big thing. And I think a lot of them are also looking at Marvel as a template because look at how Marvel as a studio managed to take their B-list characters and sometimes even C and D-list and now their household names. Uh, no one thought Iron Man was gonna be a great movie and that started the cinematic universe. And then you mentioned Marvel as being uh, connected with Hasbro. Hasbro has all of those partner brands that uh, are not their IP, Marvel being one of them, Star Wars being another example, but then they have their own in-house franchise brands like the Acquired Power Rangers, and they add that in with Transformers and My Little Pony, Baby Alive, Nerf, all of those So that's impressive. And they've got another big, I I think another big hit waiting in the wings here this fall, which is Ghostbusters Afterlife. They have so much cool product coming out for that. That was sidelined last year. We saw it at Toy Fair, New York, 2020. They had to warehouse that product and uh, it is just hitting stores this month.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of momentum, like you mentioned, and we're probably gonna have to do some follow-up conversations with that in mind. But till then, James Zahn, thank you so much for your insights today. It's been a pleasure breaking down both Mattel and Hasbro's Q2 numbers and what they indicate for some future strategies for the industry. Again, we've been chatting with James Zahn. He's deputy editor of the Toy Book. Uh, And James, if folks want to find out some more about the work that Toy Book is doing, they want to follow along with some of your publications, or they want to get in touch, how can they do
1: so? Um, Check us out online, of course, toybook.com. We are on the Pulse of Play every single day. We publish our print magazine. Um, You can certainly get a subscription to that. And then, of course, we're on all the socials, either at Toy Book or The Toy Book. Um, We also put on a couple of live events each year, Sweet Sweet and Holiday of Play, under our Toy Insider brand. And for all things licensing, pop culture, entertainment merch, we have a third publication called The Pop Insider that is also in print and online. And, uh, you know, we we have a lot of fun too chatting with folks like yourself and uh, getting out there and uh, kind of dissecting a really fun industry because there are just so many different uh, things you can talk to talk about with this. There sure are. And we'll be
0: sure to source you all again soon for some updates to the industry. James, thanks for your time. We'll chat again soon.
1: Take care.